My goal is to be pushing people in various domains, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever, out of that comfort zone, because too much time in that comfort zone is just very stagnating and life will contract if you spend too much time there. The life of an entrepreneur can often be solo and lonely. How can that journey transform from a path of isolation to one of deep connection and shared discovery? Welcome to Seek, Go, Create, where today we're joined by Mike Burchich, the founder and chief explorer at Wayfinders, a community dedicated to redefining the entrepreneurial experience through connection and exploration. With a rich background spanning 27 years in entrepreneurship from running high-end mountain bike trips around the world to his stints as a journalist and social enterprise leader, Mike's life is a testament to the power of community and authentic living. He's here to share his insights on how connecting with others, ourselves, and our natural world can lead to a more fulfilling entrepreneurial or just life journey. Mike, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Yeah, happy to be here, Tim. I'm glad you're here too. First thing I'd like to ask, let's just pretend we meet each other or if somebody just bumps into you, you're at something with your kids or on a plane, and they ask you what you do, what do you usually tell people? Yeah, if I wanted to talk about work, I would tell people, the way I describe it, my shorthand for it is, I take entrepreneurs to the wildest places on earth and I make them cry. So it's like, and then you stop. Is there anything else after that? Or you just stop and see what response you get? I usually just leave it hanging at that point, (laughs) just to pique their curiosity a little bit. So I'm going to leave it hanging right here. So you take them to the farthest parts of the world and you make them cry. There's multiple things in there that either excite me or bother me, depending on which position I'm in. But uh, how do people respond usually? Nothing? Or they just go, huh, and move along? Well, that that sounds like a question that one might respond to when you might be trying to get rid of somebody. Am I correct in that? Or is that, are you really trying to (laughs) engage with them? No, I'm just trying to pique their curiosity. Partly it's because what I do is very unique. Right, and so to give you the long answer, I host I host adventure. I guess you could call it a retreat. I call it a journey, um, in really wild, remote, spectacular places on Earth. So, a couple of months ago, I was in Western Mongolia, leading a group of twenty-seven entrepreneurs in a very remote part of one of the most remote and empty. Mongolia is the, the least densely populated country on Earth, and I led them on a nine-day journey. We accompanied a local nomad family on their fall migration. And that was, that's the adventure part of it, but it's also a journey. And I'm trying, trying to take people on a transformational journey. And it's a journey of self-discovery. It's a journey of community with other souls along the journey. It's a journey of confrontation where you might confront certain aspects of yourself. And that could be coming up against a physical limit, emotional, spiritual, whatever that may be. Um, it's all part of the mix of what I do, which is trying to create a meaningful journey. And hopefully the person who comes out on the other side isn't the same as the person who went in. And that person has a deeper sense of connection to themselves, but also to others. Also, you touched on it to this, this beautiful landscape and this beautiful setting of earth that we live in. And, and maybe a deeper sense of connection to a calling as well. So when I hear that, Mike, that there's two things that pop in my head. One is, here's a guy that's got it figured out, 
or here's a guy that's really trying to figure it out. Is it one or the other for you? Uh, it's definitely the latter. Uh, I think, you know, I've been on a journey of self-discovery as, as long as I can remember. Uh, I like to think I have a pretty high degree of self-awareness at this point in my life. I'm 52. I've put in a lot of the reps. I've put in the work. I also think I'm just scratching the surface. It's a big onion with many layers to it. And really, you know, one of my, one of my members, one of the people who's with me in Mongolia said it. She said, she said, you are going on a beautiful journey and you're bringing, you're just bringing all of us along for the ride. And that's really what it is. I don't, I never pretend that I've got anything figured out or I'm some sort of guru. Uh, I'm not interested in being that person. Some people might be, but um, if anything, if I've discovered anything, it's maybe a process and a commitment and a commitment to my own process of self-discovery, a commitment to my growth, because I understand that there's so many layers to that. There's so much work involved. If I want to live a life that is congruent with who I am at my core and at my soul, then I need to understand myself better. And I find that when I take myself to these wild places and I spend time in the company of other people, or if I spend time in complete silence and stillness, like nowhere else on earth, that I come to a deeper understanding of myself. And of course, I don't have to go to Mongolia to do that. I have practices that I do at home. But really, I'm just going on a journey and inviting people to join me because it's more fun to walk that journey with others. When you were, when you were talking about going to those places, my thought was, which is kind of, I've been looking at some of the things you've done and reading your Substack and things like that, that we'll talk about later. I've been going through this process of, do you have to go away to a far off place for this process to work, to take hold, whatever term we want to use? Can it be done locally? Can it do, can it be done in the comforts of my own home and the comforts of my current life, whatever that might be? And I'm guessing based on where you've landed, you have some thoughts on that, but contrast those two, you know, going through a transformation or going through a seeking of yourself, being more self-aware, why go literally to the other side of the earth for that to happen? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, if I were, you know, if I were the head of PR for my company, I would say, yes, you have to go to Mongolia <laughs> to do that. Uh, but speaking more seriously, of course you don't have to. Um, what, what I do is I create a journey that's so far out of the regular realm of experience. When we're in Western Mongolia, again, we're in an extremely remote place. There's nothing else around. It was just us, our small camp crew and, the, you know, nomadic family walking through this massive, massive landscape. We didn't run into a single other person for nine days. And that has an effect on you. It makes the job easier when you have access to these incredible landscapes in stillness and just completely, it's very easy when you're in your home environment to just get sucked into the minutia of your day-to-day, to to the distraction, all that kind of stuff. You have to be much more intentional. If I take you and rip you out of that and put you in Western Mongolia, you are going to have a meaningful experience unless you're completely cl- closed off to the world around you. So yes, it helps. And it helps to have a facilitator like me who is guiding you on that journey. And it helps to have people around you who are interested in that journey. You can do that at home. I have a daily practice every morning um, that helps me you know, undertake that process of, of self-awareness and discovery. I have, a, I have a daily journaling practice 
that I just write for 10, 15 minutes on whatever topic happens to be top of mind. And I'm, I'm essentially just giving free reign to my subconscious to speak to me. And that's a very valuable practice. I also meditate and do breath work and all these other practices that I do from the comfort of my living room, surrounded by my computer and my TV and my phone and all these other things that distract me and I have to work hard against them, but I, but I do it. So uh, it's a both end situation. And if you find it hard to commit to a regular practice, then sometimes it's useful to have a reboot and just go, go to Mongolia or walk the Camino or just go to go drive out of the city and go find some wilderness and sit there for three hours and see what happens. And I like that you brought up distractions because to, to me, that's one of the biggest values of getting away. And I'll give you an extremely granular petty example. I was, I was spending my quiet time this morning that I do and journaling and prayer and things like that. And then I was moving into my time of pre prepping to have this conversation with you where I want to be intentional and focused and all of that. And we're sitting here in the, the small space of our RV and I kept seeing the trash sitting right there, the trash bag from last night that still there this morning. And I kept thinking to myself, so, I, so this was the mental ping pong. Got this conversation with Mike talking about traveling the world, doing all the things he does, adventure and working with entrepreneurs and the bag of trash. That was what was the distraction that was going on in my head. And of course, now we've got devices and everything like that. It seems as if one of the things you're able to do is sort of take people outside of, I don't know if comfort, I don't know if it's distractions or outside of themselves, maybe and people around them. And what do you observe as being the most valuable thing that you bring people out of to take them to places like First thing I will say is that there will always be trash, right? There will. <laughs> Even in Mongolia, did you, you had trash Either, there? Yeah, more, more metaphorical maybe, but there'll okay. always be those things that distract us. And then the work is not to eliminate those distractions, but learn how to live with them and how to be present and all of those things. But getting to your question, my my goal is to try and bring them to a place, and I'm speaking metaphorically, not literally, bring them to a place where their armor and their normal defense mechanisms come down. Because we have all, you know, a lot of this armor gets built up in our earliest childhood experiences. And unless we bring awareness to them, unless we bring intentionality, unless we bring hard work to them, those defenses and those systems tend to remain in place. And they served us as children. They kept us safe. They, you know, whatever they did. But as adults, they they compromised the quality of our lives. And so my job is to try and bring them to a place where they can become aware of those things. And sometimes that can be done through facilitating exercise. Sometimes it's done simply by virtue of taking people up a really steep mountain and and forcing them to confront their physical limits, which tends to strip them. And, you know, they will hopefully learn something about themselves in the process. But if I do my job, they will encounter all sorts of limits over the course of their time with me, whether it's physical or emotional or mental. And if I frame that, they will learn something about themselves in the process. They will learn something about their habitual patterns of interacting with the world. And then they have a conscious choice of whether they want to continue those strategies or not. But the first step is the awareness. And... Um, 
taken them to a place like Mongolia just happens to be a ripe environment for that type of work, more so than if I were doing it in a boardroom at the Cleveland Convention Center. Right. I, I like that you brought up the physical because I, I, I've observed with myself, I'm, I look at myself as spirit, soul, mind, will, and emotions, and then body and physical. And there was a time back in, it's been years ago, I was working with the Leadership Institute of a large corporation, and we would do these what I call a bit dated now, team building exercises. We'd take people up to the North Georgia mountains, put them in pseudo situations like you're talking about. These were corporate teams, though, a little bit different than leaders. I'll ask you a little bit about the difference between, you know, what you see with fixed teams and then also with leaders and entrepreneurs. But I did notice a few dynamics that occurred when we would bring in physical challenge. There was a certain group of people that it really had what I would call positive impact, where it really created something in them, where it shut down some things for them, where they maybe had confidence in their physical ability, but yet they realized they were being stretched and it forced them to a new place. And then there were some people, and it's one of the reasons why I started moving away from those team building. Sometimes they were the higher ropes courses or at least medium type ropes courses, things like that was that I recognized there were some people that it put them in a situation that I didn't like. It almost set them back a little bit. They just weren't comfortable enough, or I don't even know how to exactly say this, but I'm kind of framing it for you to say a little bit more about the physical challenge, maybe the pro and the con. Have you seen people that think they want to go, you know, climb a 19,000 foot peak, you know, South America? but then yet it sets them back. I guess talk a little bit more putting yourself in a physical demanding situation and what that can do for us as far as our growth. Yeah. So I I have this model um, and it's concentric circles. And in the middle of that circle is our comfort zone. And that's where we tend to spend the majority of our time. And not a lot happens in the comfort zone. We stay a little bit stagnant there. Life will proceed as it has for years, or life will even contract. And just beyond that is our stretch zone or our growth zone, and that's where the growth happens when we push ourselves out of that comfort zone. But then beyond that, you have the panic zone. And if you push too far, or if I push somebody too far, or somebody pushes somebody too far, then they get out of that stretch zone and into their panic zone, and that's when they contract, and you have the opposite of the intended effect. And so for me, you know, as a facilitator and as a designer, you know, designer of events, whatever, my goal is to be pushing people in various domains, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever, out of that comfort zone, because too much time in that comfort zone is just very stagnating and life will contract if you spend too much time there. And I want to push them into that stretch zone and I don't want to push them out of that that panic zone. Now, the trick is, if we're talking simply in the physical realm, Everybody brings different physical capability um, to that. Now, my, my experience, and the science will back me up on this, is that one's actual physiology is actually a smaller part of the equation than the mental makeup, right? And, and so somebody who you know, already comes to an event quite fit or whatever, they will have an easier time up that mountain. But if they lack the mental capability to push through barriers, they might have just as hard a time as somebody who's kind of out of shape. But I also have to, you know, mitigate that somewhat. 
And so everybody's stretch zone looks a little bit looks a little bit different. So I have to tailor that somewhat. Mind you, in the case of you mentioned nineteen thousand foot mountain in South America. So we're heading to Ecuador at the end of February. We're going to attempt to summit. Uh, I think it's like 19,400 feet or something like that, Mount Cotopaxi. And it, it's a big undertaking. It's a mountaineering undertaking. We'll have, we'll have tools and we'll have crampons and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, have, I have urged everybody, and most of the people are already training so far for that experience. But I know that when we get on that mountain, and it's, um, you know, we leave, we, we drive about halfway up the mountain. We stay at a refuge. We leave the refuge around 1230 in the morning, just after midnight. And it's about a seven, eight-hour ordeal to get up to the summit uh, for sunrise and then and then back down. It's a 12-hour day. Um, I know that everybody there is going to encounter their limit at some point. Some people will encounter it sooner. Some people will encounter it harder. And so a lot of it is the train the, that mental training. You know, we have to do the physical training beforehand, and we're doing a, we're doing breath work and all these different things to deal with the altitude and physical. But the mental training is part of it too. And just what is it's learning how to deal with the voice that comes up in your head and it says, this is too hard. Stop walking. This is ridiculous. This is insane. That voice is going to come up when you're at 19,000 feet. And that's the training. That's, that's the stretch zone, right? It's learning how to deal with that voice. Because most of us hear that voice, whether it's something physical or whether it's just life, we need to get better at tackling that voice and speaking to it compassionately, but firmly and just saying, hey, I know you're just trying to keep me safe, but I got this. I'm going to push through this. And I've seen this time and time again. You know, when we were in, in Morocco last year, uh, trying to climb Mount Tubkal, which is I think around fourteen, fifteen thousand feet, highest peak in North Africa, um, there were a number of people there that were, were ready to pull the plug, but they just they dealt with that voice and they pushed through it. And you know, one guy in particular, we're now a year later, a year past that event, and he's told me just that one experience of pushing up that mountain and pushing through that voice, he recognized how much that voice dictated his life and how that voice would come and say, you're a failure, you're worthless, you can't do this, whatever. And just that act of pushing through and making it up to that summit has been so powerful for him because he knows that he now has, he now has the tools and the wherewithal to speak back to that, push through it. Yeah, there's power in that voice and knowing limitations, knowing when to stretch. And I think I'm becoming even more aware of that as I, I won't say get older, as I mature of what I can do physically and recovery time and things like that. It seems as if going back with, I know you had a company that did adventure trips with mountain bikes and all that, but it seems as if, I think a lot of us in life, we're pre- we've been prepared all our lives for what we're doing right now. And, and as I've just kind of looked at some of the things you're doing and read some things you've done and things like that, it seems as if that Mike has been prepared for this almost all your life. I, I want to circle back to your process and see what some of our leaders that are listening in can gain from what you've learned. But let's back up a little bit and whatever you want to share, what has prepared you Either positive or negative, by the way, too. We're, we're re- we redefine success here. This is We don't back away from what some might call failure because I actually think there's more power in things that don't look successful in the world's structure. But, but what's prepared you for what you're doing now? Just a couple of high points, maybe a low point or two. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think 
being an entrepreneur for as many years as I've been an entrepreneur, 26, 27, I don't know what it is, 27 now. Um, there's no job security that comes with being an entrepreneur, right? You create your own job security. And I learned very, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I learned very on that in order for me to have successes, I need to have failures. I need to take risks. And that was, in fact, one of... Uh, one of our core guiding principles at my previous company was was take risks. And I knew that if you know, operating in a very competitive industry, we needed to take risks. We needed to do things differently. Otherwise, we would just get, we would just be bland and we'd just be like the competition and eventually we'd go out of business. And so, you know, I've, over the course of that entrepreneurial career, I've, I've come within a hair's breadth of going bankrupt three separate times. And... And, I, and I've now gotten better at understanding the mechanics of how that happens and the financial mechanics. And my current company is far better poised to, to withstand something like that or just not have that happen in the first place because I just manage it better. But it, the same principle of taking risks and doing things differently applies. And I know that's going to lead to a lot of failures, but it's also going to lead to a lot of success on the way, along the way. Um, so I guess, you know, in some ways I've become a little bit uh, inured to failure and that I just understand that as a learning opportunity, right? It's just, if you want to, if you want to do great things, you have to be prepared. They're just not all going to work out, right? If I take a hundred swings, they're, you know, they're not going to work. If we look at Aaron Judge, you know, uh, best home run hitter in baseball over the last few years, that guy strikes out an incredible amount uh, because that's what he's got to do. He's got to swing big. And so, yeah, I think that's really prepared me for understanding the value of risk and that, as you said, it's kind of a lifetime thing. And when, if I look back at maybe the 24-year-old me, he took a lot of stupid risks without, without really putting a lot of planning or thought or risk mitigation into place. And now, now I still take you know, probably just as many risks, if not more, but I'm far more planned uh, about it. I mitigate it. A lot of it is mitigating catastrophic risk. I would do things in my 20s where the risk that I'm taking actually could be my life. Um, whereas now I'm not going to put myself in a situation, especially with three children, where I'm risking my life. I might risk a broken bone, something like that, or maybe a maybe end up in a wheelchair. I don't really tend to push it that hard anymore, but I'm mitigating against worst case scenarios. And that the same applies to my business. I might take a big risk and a new product, a new service or whatever, but I'm not going to do it to the extent where it's going to risk taking down the entire company with it. Uh, so it's being just more measured with my risk and wiser about it, but still maintaining that ethos of just continually pushing, pushing and taking risks, hopefully to be spending as much time as possible in that stretch zone and not getting into that panic zone where everything gets overwhelming and shuts down. One of the reasons really for what we're even doing here is that for many years, I was really bothered by how culture defines that word success. It, and in fact, it still bothers me. It bothers me, me too. what I see out there that we call success and failure, in fact, by the way. And I've tried to come up with different words or ways to describe it. And I don't think I've done a great job of it, but it seems as if that's a little bit of the business that you're in. Would that be accurate? Well, so for me personally, I define success as living a life that is true to my nature, my soul, my deepest, deepest authenticity. 
if I'm living a life that's authentic to who I am, then that to me is a su successful life. And th there's two ingredients to that. One is understanding who the heck you are and going through a process of self-inquiry and self-awareness. Because it's very easy to bullshit ourselves. And the second part of it, after you've gotten clear on that, or not after, it's a concurrent process and it's an ongoing process, is the actions and the decisions that move you in, into greater authenticity and away from more bullshitting. Um, and so, yeah, most of what we define as conventional success doesn't actually align with that, right? But most people, I know a lot of financially very successful people who live lives of utter mis misery and because it's not in line with who they are or what they want. And, uh, and some, often it's because they haven't taken the time to define who they are and what it is they really want. It's like that saying, it's like, if you're going to climb the ladder of success, make sure it's leaning on the right building. It's that you got to understand which is your building. Have you, uh, <laughs> this is a little bit of a trick question. Have you always been in that mode? I'm sure it's been a process. I guess go backwards. I did a search this morning because I was trying to remember how we were connected and so I went to my Gmail and put your name in, which is a nice, unique name. So it pulls up. And I realized that I subscribed to some email list you had back in 2016. And I got the seven steps to do this or that or whatever. Oh, wow. I've got it. If I've got it, if you wanted to be, would you be excited if I brought that up and we discussed it? Or would you go, Ooh, let's not, let's move along. What would, <laughs> I'm just curious. Sure. It's all part of the evolution. Probably, right. probably I'd wince a little bit at it, but, uh, but to answer your question, was I always this way? Certainly not. I would say, um, I went through life rather blindly until I was 34. And then when I was, and my life, I kind of did what people expected of me. You know, I went to university, got my degree. And so there were some aspects of rebellion. When, like I took a year off and I went and traveled through Southeast Asia for six months and then I moved to a little ski town in the Rockies. And then life, you know, those 10 years I spent out West were really about me and my hedonistic desires, skiing and mountain biking and playing in a band. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was a selfish arsehole, but it, I certainly wasn't thinking much, much more expansively beyond myself. And it wasn't until I was 34 that the universe delivered a nice cosmic uppercut to the face in the form of a very deep and painful depression, it was, which I'm so grateful for. And it was such a, uh, as painful, it was such a transformative experience of opening my eyes up to a totally different experience of the world. And that kicked off several years of like really deep self-inquiry and therapy and became a yoga teacher and meditation, all these different things that I discovered along the way. And it's been kind of a, you know, it's been a bit of a sine wave. I had kids along the way. And it's sometimes I get a little bit um, too focused on supporting the family and my business and the family and whatever. And I forget that, hey, invest in yourself as well. Continue this process. Um, so it's always there. It's a constant threat through all that. I'm just, I'm just a naturally very curious person. And I try to extend that curiosity to myself. You brought up something there that I did. I wanted to discuss if it came up and it did. And that's the whole aspect of money when we start talking about business people, entrepreneurs, and the world we're in today. And one of the things that I think I saw, and I don't know where this was, that your previous company, Sacred Rides, where y'all did mountain bike trips, adventure type mountain bike trips all over. It sounded as if that journey 
was, I'm going to simplify it and you could correct me. It was awesome until there was a decision for growth that was involved with bringing outside funding in. And you could go into more detail there if you want to, because I think we have listeners that can learn from the process of being addicted to growth or thinking that they need to grow and then thinking they need to go down a path. But what I really would like to talk more about is that aspect of what money does to us when we're in this arena that we're in. So just, I I think I gave you hopefully a little softball pitch to talk about pros and cons of money, either or, however you want to. So money, that's the topic. Yeah. People much smarter than me have said that money is an amplifier, right? It amplifies what is already going on in your life, your feelings, your beliefs. And so, um, you know, the common saying is if you're, if you're an arse, then a lot of money is probably going to make you an even bigger arse. Um, I would say with my previous company there prior to bringing on investors, and I did that three times, there was a real, there was a real striving. I was looking for something from my business that it, that it couldn't necessarily deliver. And that was, that was a real sense of validation. Uh, I discovered it could give me all the shiny trappings of validation awards and uh, magazine covers. And I didn't get any on any magazine covers, but I was certainly featured in a lot of them. It could give you all those trappings, but it couldn't give you a real deep sense of validation and self-worth. And once I started bringing on money, outside investors, you know, all these other f- forms of money, and, and there's quite a bit of it coming in, it just amplified that and it made that quest for validation even more frenetic and more frantic and hiring more people, more expansion, more programs, more, you know, more building, more that. I took what was a, up until that point was a really nice lifestyle business where I still got to travel and on my mountain bike and have fun. And I turned it into this big unwieldy beast where I spent a lot of my time, you know, reviewing bank documents and reviewing shareholder agreements and writing shareholder updates and managing a big team of staff and all this stuff. I remember waking up one day and said, this is not the company I set out to build. What have I done? And, and then the next few years were just backpedaling from all of that. And it was, um, it was nice for a couple of years while all that money was coming in to not have to worry whether I'm going to make payroll or not. Or I can pay myself a decent salary and all that kind of stuff. But that quickly ran out. And um, had I instead spent the time like really, really understanding, really taking the time to discover what it was that I wanted from this business, I could have, I, I could have spent that time engineering and developing and creating that company instead of the company that it became, which um, ended up just stressing out a lot of people, myself. myself. Yeah, I've observed, I've been in the coaching arena, I guess is one thing I would call it, and facilitation and things, which you've got similar things on your resume. And I've observed that many people in this arena have an addiction. And I'm going to use that word because I think it's appropriate. And it's an addiction to growth or an addiction to more. I interviewed someone recently. They said they had an addiction to tomorrow. And you had that company and it sounds like that growth and you thought you needed to grow it and things like that. And 
And then all, and then all of a sudden you kind of like had a reset and almost started chunking down to some base level things. If you can, I, I want to move into some things you've learned in the current iteration of Mike, you know, Mike, I don't know if it's 2.0, 3.0, I don't know where you are in your iterations, but, but wherever you are now, I want to get some lessons learned there, but that transition from where you were 15, 16, 17, 2015, 16, 17, to where you are now, talk briefly about the transition and what occurred and how you moved from where you were to heading in the direction that you are now. Yeah. If there's one thing I've discovered is that transitions are generally difficult, both for myself in my life and the people that, you know, in my community, I help them navigate transition. Um, transition's usually painful because it forces us to let go of something. And as humans, we don't like to let go of things. We don't like we don't like change. Our brains are not wired for change. And that transition for me, you know, I was I was letting go of a company that I'd been running for over 20 years. This was I started this company very quickly out of university and it become an, it become an inextricable part of my identity. And and this and this is so common in the entrepreneurial world where the founder and his or her company become inseparable. And that's kind of a dangerous thing because the company can come and go in an instant, right? And so the job our job is to not let our companies define us. And we can be passionate about our work, but when it becomes enmeshed in our identity, that's a dangerous thing. And that's, uh, I was blessed and I was fortunate that as I was winding my way out of that company, I was starting this company. So there was about a two year overlap there. And, and so when I sold the company and I was, I had made it very turnkey. And so I was out of the company within five, six weeks, which is extremely rapid. Um, and I've, I know a lot of people, I have a lot of friends who've sold companies and some people who've had extremely large exits. And you think, you know, somebody sells their company for $25 million. You think, oh, they've got it made. I would say more often than not, far more often than not, I would even venture to say those people end up really miserable after, you know, for the first year or two uh, after the sale. Because this thing that they've tied their identity in and all these people that, you know, work for them and all these things that gave them validation and gave them a sense of purpose and whatever is suddenly gone overnight. And they have all this money. And this thing is missing. And so I was fortunate that I had this other thing I could focus on that I was quite passionate about. But I remember um, I was early on in that process. I think I had just sold a company a few weeks before and I had my monthly meeting with my forum. This is a group of five, uh, five guys, fellow entrepreneurs we met monthly. And it was my turn to present to the group. And I said, I've just sold my company. Um, I've got this, I've got this, you know, new thing that I'm kind of starting, but it won't take up all of my time. I'll still have lots of time left over. And here, and then I think I outlined five or six different projects that I that were on the side burner. And I said, and I walked them through it and I said, which of these do you think I should, you know, I want to turn one of these into a company or I want to do something. With that, thank God for that group because every one of them said to me, "Why on earth do you need to rush into the next thing? You know, you've got another company that you can put your time to that, but you've got this amazing opportunity to just like slow down, spend time with your family. You know, it was spring; we were heading into summer, and just enjoy that time. And so I'm so grateful they said that. I ended up spending a lot of time with my family. I ended up spending a lot of time just 
being quiet and being still and getting to know myself. And so that, that transition was actually relatively, relatively smooth. There were aspects of it that were painful. Um, but part of it too, is I had been running that previous company for so long. I was a little bit burnt out. And even though my identity was so wrapped up in it, kind of burnt out and I was happy. It felt like it, it felt like it belonged to another chapter of my life and that I'd hung on to it for too long. And, um, and so I'm super proud of that company and I'm glad the new owner is doing great things with it, but I was also happy to let it go. A lot of what I think about these days is how can we more elegantly navigate transition and how can we more elegantly navigate that letting go process? Because often the, what makes the transition so difficult and so hard to move on because we won't let go of the thing we're supposed to let go of. And so it's hard to move on when you're still holding on for dear life to something that just needs to be let go of. And that's a question I ruminate on often, what needs to be let go of. And I guess somewhere along the way, I think one of the initial names that you had for your current company, Wayfinders, was Mastermind, Mastermind Adventures or something, which I've going way back years Mastermind's a word that's thrown around. I'm not even sure if a lot of people even know what it means now at its root, but I've always enjoyed most of those type environments. I've enjoyed running them and things like that. But, and then I heard somewhere or saw somewhere that you really decided during COVID to up your, what we'll call facilitation game. And I remember the first facilitation training I went through in the late eighties, shortly after I came out of university at Georgia Tech. And I remember I, I thought to myself, the philosophy of facilitation is probably as important as the technique. I'd, I'd love for you just maybe briefly contrast the differences between maybe coaching, mastermind, and that word that I think is more powerful than just a technique of holding a marker and standing in front of a group, which is facilitation that it seems as if is a craft that you're really immersing yourself in is the ability to facilitate. Mm -hmm. Well, coaching, a lot of coaches approach that, that technique from a standpoint of giving people advice and telling them what they should do, which doesn't really resonate with me because unless I'm spending 10 hours a day with you for six months. I never really get the full sum total of who you are as a person. And my experience may not be relevant to yours. Now, more evolved coaches might take a different approach where it's more about questioning. And that's where it ventures into facilitation. And so for, and then just briefly, mastermind is this term that came up to denote like, you know, people getting together for a shared purpose and, you know, a shared brain and thinking and stuff like that. I, the reason I changed the company name, I got so sick of it the term because it just it was popping up everywhere, as you said. Facilitation for me, and I've taken a number of different trainings, is really about a process of helping. For me, it's about helping people unlock their own wisdom and create. And my job is simply to create the context and create the stage for that to happen. And one of the things I learned about facilitation is that in order for me to do my job well, I have to, I have to try and be as present as I possibly can to the people that I'm with. And so there's one training I took where so most of the training was just learning how to be in presence, not just with what's going on in the room and with the other people, but what's going on within yourself and learning to navigate those dynamics of, you know, this person, 
uh, and then what's happening in the what's happening in that person, what's happening in the group, what's happening in myself, and the complex interdynamics of all of that's going on, and how does that inform how I show up as a facilitator? And if I do that job well, that that primary ingredient is presence and being presence to all of that stuff uh, simultaneously. I talked to someone who was a coach, and they said one of the things that coaches will often do is project themselves, their issues, whatever. I've been around facilitators that do that also. It's, I don't even know if neutrality is the right word, but I love your description of it because I do think there's a certain degree of healthiness that one has to have to do it. And I think our world would be a little bit different right now if we had more people that adopted political leaders and leaders in situations adopted that. I'm, I'm not the expert. I'm just here to help pull out whatever greatness is there. And so I love that you in your role get to be around and with some great deal of time, this group of people will call entrepreneurs 20 to 30 at a time. Just curious, what is some of the best, coolest things about being around entrepreneurs and what's one or two things that might suck about being around entrepreneurs. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's an odd group. And in fact, I'm, I think sometimes we're overusing the word entrepreneur. I think we're throwing that around in an odd way, but just the good and the bad of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. uh, I would, you know, in terms of the good, what I, what, the reason I serve entrepreneurs and, and they are my customers is that, I mean, I could, you know, I could do what I do with, for anybody, but the reason I continue focus on entrepreneurs is they tend to be they tend to be very growth minded and most of them not all of them but you, i think you discover very early on that your company will only go so far as you will go as a person and if you don't invest in yourself and your growth and your awareness that's going to come back and really bite you in the ass in terms of how your company and who you are all all, the, all that stuff all that baggage or whatever shows up in your company and so you have to develop a level of self-awareness and entrepreneurs tend to be more growth-minded and more curious, I find, than the average person. Now, the bad part of it, and this is something I play with a lot at my events, is that they tend to really want control. They're used to, they're used to creating the company and the life that they want because they can, they have the means to, to create what it is that they want. And then they start to fool themselves into thinking that they can control everything. One of the ways I play with that is I reveal very little about my, my events. You'll get a packing list when you go to Ecuador or Papua New Guinea or whatever, some of these places I'm heading to in the future. You'll get a packing list and a few things to prepare, but beyond that, you have no idea what you're in for, nor will you know on any given day other than you should wear this and you should put this in your backpack. And one of the reasons I do, I do it for two reasons. One, because surprises are cool. Secondly, because it plays around with um, their sense of control. My, my customer, and they learn to surrender and just trust. And if they can do that in the rest of their lives, just surrender a little bit more and trust a little bit more, it tends to have good results. Yeah, that trust is powerful. Another thing that I see you talk about, and just maybe a brief statement on this, is the importance of being still and quiet. We've talked about that a good bit here. It comes up often, but in the world we're in today with so much coming at us, so many distractions, so much going on. What is a tip or two you have about, and maybe the importance 
of just being still. It sounded like that helped. Sounded like that helped you through your transition that you went through. For sure, as I'm fond of saying, if you don't become still, you can't listen to your heart and you can't speak to your soul. And these are ne nebulous, ethereal terms, but that term soul, for me, really is just who are we at our core? And we can't find that out when we're drowning in a world of distractions and noise. And so we need to find stillness. And again, you don't have to go to Western Mongolia to do that. You can do that in your living room. Just be quiet and meditate and, or just sit there for 10 minutes. And if you can, go out into the woods and find a little patch of wilderness, leave everything behind and just sit there for an hour or three hours or overnight and just see what happens. And uh, it's a very, it can be a very powerful, it's just the simplest thing in the world. Just go sit somewhere quietly. And it's amazing how transformative it is, how transformative it is. And it's amazing how people avoid it. I think that's where people gain the clarity of what their journey is supposed to be versus me trying to copy Mike's journey, which is what a lot of mm -hmm. people are doing. Hey, Mike, where can people find you? Where do, I know I know it was powerful. You said we're booked. We don't have spots available for anybody, but where can people go if they just want to connect or follow some of the things you're doing? Yeah, way-finders.com, W-A-Y-finders.com. Uh, yeah, my next available adventure is until October 2025, but I also have, we have our community membership model. I have a really cool business coaching program starting in January 2024. So there's other ways to get involved. Cool. So people can check that out. Mike, we're seek. Go create those three words. I'm going to allow you, as my last question, to pick one of those that means more than the other two and why, and then we'll be finished. Hmm. I'm going to go with seek. In the process of seeking, I have to go. And I probably have to create something along the way so I get to cheat. But no, really, I mean, I think, um, like I, I touched on curiosity is one of my biggest values. And curiosity about the world, curiosity about other people, but especially curiosity about myself is a huge value. And that's obviously a process of seeking. And I just love being a lifelong seeker. And I look forward to doing it. You know, I don't expect to find all the answers, but I just like the questions along the way. Thank you, Mike, for joining us. We are Seek Go Create, releasing new episodes every Monday. Your support means the world to us. We appreciate it greatly. Now we got something new. You can tip us or buy me a cup of coffee or maybe a sip of whiskey or offer financial support. All you have to do is go to seekgocreate.com forward slash support. Contributions there. You could start at just a dollar and you can leave a comment, say hello, and your comment might be featured in a future episode. Just visit seekgocreate.com forward slash support and give us a tip or buy me a cup of coffee. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.